When looking at profitability of your market garden, there are many factors to consider, such as the price of your seeds, worth of your labor, and what distribution method you will use to sell your produce or value-added products. You may be torn between attending the local farmer's market, selling wholesale, building a farm store, or starting a CSA program. Today, you're going to hear from Jared of Budding Moon Farms about considerations and methods he uses when making sure his garden is profitable when distributing through a CSA and RX program. I'm your host, Morgan Hughes. South Dakota Specialty Producers Association is made up of growers, consumers, and others interested in producing, marketing, and supporting South Dakota specialty crops, meats, and locally made products. This podcast is made possible through a specialty crop block grant that SDSPA received through the South Dakota Department of Agriculture and Natural Resources. This season, our podcast theme is Grown Here, How South Dakota Producers Can Have a Profitable Market Garden. Thank you, Jared, for joining us today. To start off, can you tell me a little bit about Budding Moon Farm, its products, and your role there? Thanks for having me, Morgan. Yeah, um... Budding Moon Farm is a small, uh, primarily vegetable farm located about five miles west of Spearfish. I grow over 50 different varieties of vegetables, a couple fruits um, on two-fifths of an acre. Um, I have a small orchard that's too young to be producing anything uh, as well, so that's hopefully part of the future plans. Uh, the entire property is managed organically. Um, I'm not currently certified organic, but I am in the process of becoming USDA certified organic. Um, I'm the only person that works on the farm. I don't have any employees or uh, volunteers or work shares, if people are familiar with that, with a CSA. And uh, yeah, all my all the product is distributed through a CSA program, uh, which also includes uh, prescription produce or veggie RX um, component as well. Very nice. Uh, so diving into some of the prices and profitability questions, when you're setting your prices, uh, do you feel that producers tend to over or undervalue their products? Yeah, you know, um, I, I've seen it both ways uh, in this state. I've seen products that are uh, undervalued. I've seen really high quality products that um, uh, people could probably charge more for and get a higher price for. And I've also seen products that are really low quality that people are charging a high price for, uh, whether it's produce that's in bad condition or uh, not washed up, just looks rough um, compared to the value or the price that they're asking for it. I think, you know, it's very personal choice about what farmers choose to set their prices at, but, uh, you know, there's a risk to both setting it too high or too low. If you set it too low, you might, um, you know, you might uh, kind of jeopardize the long-term sustain financial sustainability of your farm. Uh, if you set it too high, uh, could do the same thing by alienating uh, customers, um, especially if uh, more producers enter, enter your local market and uh, competition increases. Yeah, and you bring up a good point about the simple things like washing your produce and things like that, the presentation that can go a long way. Um, what do you feel is the most often overlooked cost that producers don't think about when they're determining their prices? 
Yeah, um, I I think the most overlooked cost would be labor um, or just not accurately calculating how much labor uh, people are putting into their operation. Um, I had a uh, trying to remember, I think it was Josh Volk from uh, Farms Out in Oregon has written a couple books, uh, but I was at a presentation he was giving once and he uh, just said to keep track of all your hours for a year. So in a notebook, kind of write that down for at least a year, January to, through December, um, every single time you put uh, even 10 minutes into turning on water or um, venting a greenhouse or uh, updating your social media. So calculating absolutely everything that you do for your operation um, and just writing that down to realize how many hours you're actually putting in. Um, and then you can kind of figure out uh, what you're paying yourself or what you're earning hourly um, by dividing your kind of leftover gross income uh, by those hours and um, give you an idea of just where you're at. I think that's a good practice. I started doing that a couple of years ago. Um, and I think um, farmers can really figure out how efficient they are, um, if there's places they need to improve, um, or, you know, finding if there's places that they're wasting time or opportunities to save time. Because, um, you know, whether whether they want to use that time more wisely or have more free time, more rest, um, that's all valuable too. So I think that uh, just figuring out uh, their own labor and how much is actually going into uh, what they're producing uh, would be a important thing to track because it's easy, especially if you live on the farm, to forget all those couple of minutes. It's not like going into the office from nine to five. Um, every day is not a set hour of work. You said that you started doing that a couple of years ago. Uh, do you still find that you're trying to track everything? Or have you- Yeah, I don't track it in as much. That's a good question. Yep, I don't track it in as much um, detail as I did the first couple of years, just going down to those like every couple of minutes, writing it down. Um, but if I'm doing especially new tasks or um, things that just weren't typical in the previous years, I'll make sure to kind of write those down to figure those in. Um, and uh, I've, I've reduced the number of hours I've worked uh, since I started doing that um, while also including in, um, you know, like time to do this podcast. Uh, this is part of my hours that I've calculated in and time to prep for it as well. Um, it's all all part of the farm. So I figure it's only fair for me to calculate that into my hours for the year. Absolutely. So has Budding Moon taken part in any other distribution previously? Yeah. Um, so like I said, I'm 100% distribution through CSA um, besides some that's distributed, uh, donated to a food pantry. Um, but my first, let's see, the first year I did smell, sell a small amount to a local restaurant and a small grocery store in town. But uh, after that, I switched 100% uh, to uh, the CSA distribution model. Um, 
and then uh, included the prescription produce uh, to that CSA uh, as a way to reach more members, customers, whatever you want to call them, uh, who uh, couldn't afford um, and weren't being connected to my CSA. So that's how I um, kind of transitioned that in. I guess it's been three full years I've been doing the prescription produce program. So through that transition, uh, did you? what was the effects on your profitability that you noticed versus uh, distributing to restaurants and the CSA shares? Yeah, um, uh, you know, I think if you run a CSA well, it can be extremely profitable um, compared to both wholesale, whether it's through a grocery store, restaurant, um, or selling at a farmer's market. A lot of times with the wholesale, uh, especially the grocery stores and often restaurants are looking for a lower price than you could get with direct-to-consumer, um, like at a farmer's market or CSA or farm stand. Um, but the nice thing about a CSA is that there, there's not much for associated costs with me. Um, you know, if you're at a farmer's market, you have to pay for your spot, your booth uh, for the year at most places. Depends on where you're at. It could be really cheap or in a bigger, bigger location. It could be a little bit pricey. Um, and there's also very little uh, time I put into uh, the CSA. Um, so I don't have to, I don't have to drive to the farmer's market. I don't have to set up at the farmer's market, sit at the farmer's market um, for one or two days a week. Uh, it's just uh, set pickup time for the CSA. Um, and some people do it even quicker by just dropping off the boxes, but I staff my CSA. And so I get to uh, interact and meet with all the customers. Um, and I don't put any, uh, any cost into marketing as well. The, um, over the last couple of years, everything's pretty much sold itself, um, both from having returning members um, and then from those members, word of mouth, sharing it with their friends, and then they sign up or get on my waiting list if I'm filled. Um, so uh, really, you can especially after the first year, you know, the first year or two of a CSA, you might have to advertise if people don't know about you in the community. Um, but after that, the quality of your vegetables really sells itself. Um, there's also, if you plan and organize your CSA well, there should be very, very little waste. Um, so if you're able to plan out your season as opposed to a farmer's market, you know, you might, you might go and you might sell out all of something um, and then have other products left over that no one's buying. Um, and unfortunately, sitting out at a farmer's market in the sun or even if you've got good shade, the heat uh, really uh, does a number on that produce and makes it pretty unsellable after the farmer's market. Uh, as opposed to the CSA, I only harvest and uh, distribute exactly what I'm going to that week. So there's no uh, no waste um, from any product not being moved at all. Um, so I've kind of got all the selling done at the beginning of the year. Um, and then all I have to do is focus on growing it, harvesting it, and getting it cleaned up and packed up for people. Yeah, um, you mentioned returning shareholders. And I'm curious, 
From year to year, do you find that a large percentage of your shareholders are returning customers or uh, do you have a large amount of new customers each year as well? Yeah, it's um, I've averaged right around 90% of customers returning. Um, and then most of the, so then new customers take up that extra 10%. And then I've also expanded um, every year and offered more shares. So that ends up um, being new customers as well, but uh, keeping that high retention rate of at least 80, but ideally 90 plus percent is my goal. I never, I never assume I can do a hundred percent because there's always people moving. Uh, they've got life changes, whether it's kids get more busy. So they travel more and a CSA doesn't work for them in the summer. Um, but my goal is always to keep everyone happy enough um, that they want to return. Um, if it makes sense with their schedule, if they still, still live here. Um, so that makes it again, easier for me. I've known my customers, um, at the beginning of the year, even before it can harvest anything. So when you're pricing out your CSA shares, can you walk me through your method of pricing out each share for the year and discuss some of the factors that you take into account? Yeah. Um, so my uh, pricing is a little bit different. So I uh, distribute my CSAs on a sliding scale or uh, I call it pay what's right for you. Um, so all the members get to choose what they want to pay. I have a, I have a value um, written down so people can sign up for a small, medium, or large share. Um, the values of those are $20 a week, $30 a week, or $40 a week. Um, so they're, uh, they're told ahead that my goal is to get them at least that value um, Ideally, I shoot for 10 to 20% more than that value every week because they've committed to me. So I like to hopefully have a little bit of bonus, a little bit of wiggle room in case the weather's bad um, one week or something and it dips below the other weeks have made up for it. Um, so so with the sliding scale or the pay what's right for you, uh, you know, say, here's what's going to be in the value each week. You can sign up for whatever size and then uh, they get to choose uh, what fits their household budget. Um, there's suggested amounts. Uh, so I look at uh, like what's a living wage in our area, what um, what amount of that people would spend on their food budget. Um, and then I also look at kind of what the median wages are in our area as well. Um, and when I first started pricing this way, I figured out that um, uh, a lot of like oh, local organically grown food uh, is unaffordable to quite a few um, people, uh, majority of the people actually in our area. Um, so figuring out that that, you know, $40 value for a large share each week, uh, which I, I calculate that by looking at, looking around at like the local food co-op, um, grocery stores, kind of scanning for, similar produce and ideally like i said mine is the goal is to have it be higher quality so that people um want it even more uh another local farm stand so i just kind of check the prices on that to figure out what should i be valuing my pound of green beans at pints of cherry tomatoes etc um 
and figuring out that value and kind of crunching the numbers um, for setting the kind of the base of my sliding scale, I figured out that for people kind of making the median middle income, uh, they need about a 40 to 50% discount to be able to afford it in their budget. So that's what I suggest. Um, and then uh, if other people are able to contribute more, I say they can uh, support someone else, support a share by uh, contributing a little bit more. But again, it's all it's all on the honor system, whatever they want to pay um, is what I what I accept. And it's uh, it's worked out well. The relationships I have with my members um, got a good, good trust system. And um, a lot of people have appreciated being able to pay a lower price. Uh, it's made it so that they can remain members every year, even if their job situation, income situation changes for their family. Um, they know they can pay a little bit less that year and, um, you know, no questions asked. They still get to be a part of it, just like everyone else. That sounds like a really great system and makes it uh, very accessible for the community uh, and allows them to share the wealth. Uh, with CSAs, uh, if they can't come every week to pick up their share or they miss a week, uh, what happens with those vegetables that they miss that week? Yeah. Um, most of the time, if they know that they're going to be gone, they've either, they either set up with a friend or other family member or neighbor to come pick up their share. Um, occasionally, some of them just say, please, you know, donate my extra to the food pantry this week. Um, uh, if sometimes people's work schedules vary, um, quite variable, um, especially, uh, members who are part of my veggie RX program. So I try to work with them, uh, either letting them swing by the farm at a different time, um, for pickup, or if like an emergency happened in their family, I try to be really flexible, um, or meet them up somewhere else. Uh, so I, try to do everything I can to make sure that they either get their veggies or someone else can pick them up for them. Um, but again, like, you know, CSA just doesn't work for everyone. Some people, their schedule is really all over the place. And so if anything, I try to, uh, convince people of why a CSA doesn't work for them. Um, and then if they still stick around and still want to be a part of it, then, uh, then I usually know it's going to work out pretty well. But, um, you know, I try to, I try to not sell them on anything that's not appropriate for them, for their family, for their situation. So my next questions are moving a little bit more into the growing of the produce. So with a lengthy CSA season going all the way to December, are there any season extenders like uh, high tunnels that you find are most helpful in terms of profitability and longevity from year to year? Yeah, um, I I do utilize uh, movable high tunnels, um, and that definitely helps me get things growing earlier in the season, uh, as well as extending it later into the season. Uh, that's a it's a big draw for a lot of the CSA members, uh, I think, which makes it easier to sell the shares as well. Um, is that I typically have produce um, as early as most most other farms around here. And maybe, um, you know, I try to have more variety earlier than others do as well. Um, but for me, more importantly is going later into the season. Uh, there's a lot of 
a lot of good opportunities to extend the season. So I've got a number of CSA members who um, don't participate in the summer share um, because they either have their own garden or they maybe are members of another CSA or like to shop at the farmer's market. Um, but once the fall comes around and there's very few um, options for local produce, a lot of a number of them uh, join up to my CSA because um, I extend later into the season than other um, other options so that um, that gives me connection. And some of those connections I've had, you know, from one fall then rolls into the next summer that they want to um, continue being members. So uh, again, it's the kind of the vegetables and the availability of them really sells themselves, um, which is nice. Uh, another, another great thing about the season extension is um, it allows me a little bit more work-life balance. Uh, so I don't have to just work 60 to 80 hours a week in the summer. Uh, I set my goal and have met it to work never more than 50 hours a week, even in the peak of the summer. Um, and I, you know, it allows me to spread out the season longer, uh, but I want to make sure that I can enjoy all the things I like to do during the summer, hiking, spending time with my family, et cetera. Um, and, you know, high tunnels and protected growing environments are also a little bit of a insurance policy against some weather. You've got a little bit more controlled climate. Um, so they're profitable and um, just the ability to grow in that controlled environment, that protected space um, makes them profitable. You don't even need to uh, receive one of the infrastructure grants or high tunnel grants to um, make the numbers work. Uh, just the, the return compared to growing outside. Um, really pays for themselves on a pretty short period of time. Um, so it's a good good investment uh, to make for more, more productivity, more efficiency on the farm, for sure. Another, another important thing um, for extending my season is storage. Um, so being able to uh, store different crops, um, so having the right, uh, right facilities to do that, to get stuff cleaned up. Um, and then having a few different temperatures because vegetables don't always don't like all the same temperatures, but having a few different zones uh, to keep uh, produce at uh, the optimal humidity and temperature is really important um, so that you can you can harvest those storage crops like carrots and keep them in really good condition uh, late into the winter. Um, uh, I guess a final thing. Uh, doesn't even involve any infrastructure, but just being able to pick out some unique uh, varieties of things or different crops um, that consumers might not be familiar with in our area, but that do do better uh, in colder temperatures. Uh, very, very common substitute for me. You know, we often have unpredictable early freezes and frosts. Uh, so I choose to grow a lot of chicories like radicchio, uh, in the fall and early winter, as opposed to lettuce, uh, which is a little bit more vulnerable to uh, those freezes and frosts. Um, so it's just been, all I have to do is a little bit of education on uh, cooking, eating preparation uh, for those, uh, since people aren't as used to the chickpeas as the lettuces. But uh, for me, then I don't uh, lose a crop when the weather turns really fast on me.
That's great. Uh, talking about the different seasons, uh, would do your customers typically purchase the summer shares and then the fall shares? Or is there also an option to purchase a share that goes all the way from the beginning of the summer to the winter? Yeah, I, um, you know, I just sell them one season at a time um, to not, uh, I think maybe the first year or something I had a kind of a longer all-in-one option, um, but found that, you know, even if some people want to commit to the summer and the fall season, their schedule might change um, before they get to the fall. And then I have to back up and find somebody else to take that spot. Um, never want them to feel bad, like they have to stick with it, even if it doesn't work. Um, and so uh, how I do it now is I just sell um, summer shares. And then the people who are members in the summer get the first chance to sign up for the fall and winter um, veggies. Um, but it's not a requirement. Um, there's no... No financial benefits since it's uh, they can pay choose to pay whatever they want. There's no discounts for um, buying more. They just they get to choose what they're paying anyway. So I, that's that's kind of why I've gone to separating them out um, more. Sounds like that makes it more flexible for the customers. So you mentioned in your introduction that you grow on two fifths of an acre. About how many CSA shares do you fill per year with that or per season? Yeah. Yep. Um, so I do uh, 60 uh, to be the medium shares. So I know I'd sell a variety of small, medium and large. So I take my medium as kind of my counting middle of the road share. So it's 60 of those. Um, half of them this year will be the VeggieRx or prescription produce program. And then the other half, um, just regular sliding scale shares. Um, and the, that'll be about 25 weeks um, of distribution, including both the summer and uh, fall, early winter uh, for those shares. Um, in addition to that, uh, it's my goal to uh, have about uh, five shares worth for our own household, um, for ourselves, storage, sharing with neighbors, um, for all 52 weeks of the year, and then also um, contributing to the local food pantry. So the kind of the goal, um, uh, you know, maybe a different way to calculate it uh, would be kind of a value amount. My goal is to turn out about $60,000 worth of produce um, per year on the uh, two fifths of an acre. Um, and then, keep my expenses below $7,000 a year for everything with that. So to fill 60 shares for plus your uh, households and the food pantry for 25 weeks, is there any practices that you use to specifically increase your yield when you're using a smaller space? Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, maybe not quite mentioned this, but, you know, rather than focusing on profitability uh, as the word with my um, farm, since it's sliding scale, I really try to focus on um, being efficient and productive. 
And then, you know, like that kind of goes back to your question before, then you just figure out where to set your price to, if you're being efficient, you're being productive, then you set the price to figure out how to be profitable. Um, so for me, for that um, efficiency on the small scale, uh, it's really about uh, making every square foot count um, so that there's as little wasted space as possible. Uh, there's obviously places I have to walk, so I can't grow stuff there because I would squish it, make it unmarketable. Um, but I try to maximize really every square foot. Uh, so that means I don't use any uh, plastic mulch uh, because that's just wasted space. Um, so rather than covering the ground with mulch, uh, I interplant a lot. So a lot of people put mulch uh, underneath their large long season crops like uh, tomatoes, peppers. Um, instead of that, I interplant uh, small gem lettuces under those uh, different herbs like basil, parsley, um, and then in with like uh, brassicas, cabbage, uh, cauliflower, etc. I interplant a lot of other herbs, cilantro, dill, um, scallions. Uh, so to really use that space so there's not um, not bare ground. Um, also planting in a lot of cover crops, um, keeping the ground covered. So rather than rather than it just being like a hay mulch or the, again the plastic mulch, uh, which doesn't feed the soil very well, uh, I try to um, have a cover crop in there that's contributing uh, value uh, while it's taking up the space instead of uh, just kind of sitting idly. But um, you know, really something you have to get control of either before or as you do that is making sure that you have your weed pressure under control. Um, that I know that's why a lot of people use the plastic mulches is to uh, not spend time weeding. Um, but if you can kind of prevent those weed problems from the start um, by biting off a small amount rather than too much, um, then uh, you don't need the straw mulch. You don't need the plastic mulch to control weeds. Um, the uh, the plants you're trying to sell can outcompete uh, the low weed pressure for sure. So um, it's trying to you know really use every square inch. Um, and then uh, once I harvest things out, really flipping them into another crop really quickly. Um, ideally the same day. Uh, and if I don't have time to grow another crop, uh, like I said, it's immediately then rolled into a cover crop, um, which also adds value. Um, that's how I, um, that's how I provide nutrients. Uh, I've got, uh, almost no bought in inputs and fertilizers. Uh, it's all cover crops. So they're, uh, they are contributing value, even if I'm not selling them or distributing them to anyone. So aside from uh, other produce, what types of cover crops are you using in your garden? Yeah, I use a really wide variety. Um, uh, try to have multiple species in every mix of cover crops. Uh, so usually at least one grass like oats, barley. Um, used a little bit of winter rye, but uh, we've got a really short season, so it's hard to get a crop after it 
um, here for me. Um, and then uh, different peas, clovers, a uh, few flowering species like phacelia. Um, and then occasionally I also cover crop with marketable crops like cilantro um, to add more diversity in there, but then also have a crop that I can sell at the same time to use that space. So it's really um, trying to have a mix out there. Um, I don't use any brassicas like radish as cover crops because uh, they I already have a lot of those as my um, in that family that I sell. And so I don't want to attract more uh, pest or disease pressure because um, I don't use any uh, pesticides, insecticides at all. Um, so it's about really my cultural management practices. So I try to not make more problems for myself with anything. One final question about the expanding of your program that you mentioned earlier. From year to year, about how many shares have you expanded? Yeah, the CSA, you mean how many shares I started with? Yeah. Yeah, um, I think, let's see. Uh, so when I started um, in, I think 2019 was the first year I had shares. Um, CSA shares available. I think I had somewhere between 20 and 25 shares, probably closer to 20 shares that year. Um, so I've roughly tripled um, in the number of CSA shares that I've done um, over, that would be five years of running a CSA here. Wow, lots of growth. Uh, thank you for joining us and visiting with us today. If anyone were wanting to learn more about your programs or stop and visit Budding Moon, where can they find out more? Yeah, um, probably the two easiest ways to contact me um, would be uh, Instagram uh, at Budding Moon Farm. Uh, you can message me there, uh, check out some of the other things I've mentioned. Um, or email is always a great way to get in contact with me, uh, buddingmoonfarm at gmail.com. Uh, um, and I'm always happy to chat with people, learn from people, share share what I've done, share my mistakes, et cetera. That's how I've uh, learned to grow is by a lot of other producers sharing their knowledge and experience with me. So I'm happy to pass along anything I can. Thank you. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to the South Dakota Specialty Producers Association podcast. And until next time, keep growing.